I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you are listening to Close Reads, podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Anthony Trollope's The Warden. Uh, this week, we are specifically talking about chapters 6 through 10. Heidi, how's it going? Going great. You know, before we get into the book and all. Thanks for asking. It's great. I heard you guys talking about the weather before we started recording, and I was like going in and out. And I just really don't like how cold it is at all. Wait, but so what, how are. cold is it there in Colorado? Well, it's just like in the 30s right now. It's not like freezing, but I... Well, I mean, that kind of is freezing. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. Man, <laughs> <Damn>, which 30s? <laughs> that is a really good point. I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed right now, but I'm just cold. And it's just that time of year that people ask me how I'm doing. How are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm I'm still on the plane I, of existence. Yeah. Do you have uh you know we don't have to get too deep into this here yeah. on on a public uh you know space. But just you know do seasonal you, depression. Do, yeah. Do you have seasonal depression? Like would you, would you, would you like... self-diagnose yourself as having you know? Maybe I feel like there's that term seasonal depression is just kind of like a human experience that should be geared towards that like wintering instinct but mm. instead because we live in the frantic modern world we still have to yeah. like, like go live and think that's a frantic right. modern life mm. um yep. but what we should be doing is what the whole created order is doing which is like resting and being at peace and going to bed early and yeah, like that's yeah, yeah. like we have this like rhythm that we're supposed to live in with the created order and instead i'm just like doing stuff I, i'm in i'm and and it does impact me that's true it impacts me but i i don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with me as much as there is with like our our um <laughs> like i'm not like prone to something that nobody else is i guess i'm saying that there's mm, just right. this, we live this lifestyle that's unhealthy and i yeah. am impacted by it for sure yeah yeah sean how are you <laughs> i know right <laughs> sorry i'm really bad at small talk <laughs> I'm I'm similar to Heidi, but in reverse because I live in a in a climate that is other than the climate I would like to live in. So we were talking about how it's 70 and rainy here, but it's hmm. it's mid-July or mid mid-July. That's what it feels like. Uh it's mid-January and I want it to be cold. I want to winter. Yeah. And uh I want to have a what reason a to curl up like the hedgehog. And, lot we are. Yeah. David, how are you? Please don't say you're like the best day of your life because then we're going to feel ashamed. We're going to lose it. (laughs) Actually, we'll be. I am. I am perfectly contented in the rain, the the, the low, the low 60s, high 50s rain and wind that we have here. Uh, Well, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. I actually love, you know, a day like that that is essentially i want it to be like i'm in england that's what i want that's the best weather for me that's that's the ultimate kind of weather i, I, I like it to be in the 50s and rainy although i do love a day that's like 32 and sunny well uh, on monday we had yeah. one of those and we went out in the woods with the kids for a couple hours and the kids were walking on the creeks that were frozen they probably couldn't do it for very long but they were doing it for a while and uh you know it, that it was sunny and we were, had our jackets on, but then you take your hat off, you know, and you feel the sun on your face. I love a day like that, but my favorite kind of day is a day where you're supposed to be in England, right? It's feel that's what it would, you know, traditional day like that. But that's because I like all the things that involve wintering. I like sweaters. My yeah. favorite kind of uh, wardrobe item is a good sweater. I like boots. Uh, I like hot tea and uh, books and, you know, all the things that, that are most desirable on days such as that. So it all goes together, which is to say, I don't mind the weather, but I'm discontent for other reasons, I suppose. (laughs) Good. Uh, I am a little discontent. (laughs) I got to say, Sean, about this book. I'm just going to put it out there. Um, And so here, here's, here's, it's a segue, man. It's a segue. Just roll. (laughs) Um, It's, uh, um, I, I do have a question though. The day that we're recording this, we're posting your, why read, the warden post oh, yeah. that you wrote, which you 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 wrote in your email to me something like, 
feel free to edit this as much as possible, as much as you wish. Okay. This said, he wrote, Heidi, he wrote, this can change in any way necessary up to and including ceasing to exist. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, uh, which is really a delightful thing for an editor to receive actually. Right. Um, but you offer some, um, some notes in here, five reasons for why the, why to read the, the warden. And one of them is it's old. The Warden is more than 100 years old and people still talk about it. If this were your only metric for selecting a book, you would rarely read a stinker. Now, I agree with that idea. Um, And I'm not suggesting that this is a stinker. Uh, But I do have a question about that metric as regards to this book. Because one of the things that I have been contemplating is why is this book still read 100, almost 200 years later. I mean, 170 yeah. years later, because it's 1855. Yeah, so well over 100 years. And and this book is something that's still, you know, Penguin is still publishing the Penguin Classics, which is what I have here. Um, it's still read in, you know, colleges and literature courses, and people still talk about it. And George Orwell wrote about it in the 1940s. And, um, you know, it, it's, it has a, um, a reputation. And one of the things I've been thinking about is why has this book stood out uh, from so many other books that were written during the era? Um, and I am also going to ask you to summarize this section here in a minute. But let's let's uh, let's let me ask that. Um, that part was for Heidi, right? <laughs> she just gave me a look like <laughs> like it, like that uh, better have been for Sean actually. I, nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the thing here, let me let me just I'll, I'll paraphrase what happens in this section. Not a lot, to be honest. This is true. People and, go to each other's houses and talk. You're right. There's a there's a conference. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, RPG Woodhouse named lawyer. Um, he has he basically makes the assessment that the case against Harding and the church uh, it doesn't have legs to stand on. They all get together on a technicality. T- <laughs> on a technicality, they all get together. The the, the churchmen get together to discuss it. And Harding is not, doesn't feel great about the fact that it's a technicality that would be letting him off the hook. He then goes home, has a sad day of it, uh, wanders around the woods while his daughter watches out the window. Uh, they get together at the end of the day over tea, as one does, and they uh, they discuss uh, their their lot in life and and the the suffering that they're going through, and ultimately decide that maybe we won't run away, but that wouldn't that be nice in its own way. And then at the end of it, they go to bed comparatively happy. Uh, was the I believe comparatively was the word that that the yeah, book used. That so that's pretty strange. much what happened in this section. Let's go back to my other question: Why do you think this book has? stood the test of time thus far. And I ask that in part because the problems are so specific. Um, they're so, uh, I, I like, I, they're so specific to the, to the time. Um, and in a way, and yet the book is still lasting. So what do you think allows it to last? We can get into the specifics of that problem and whether they, it's, there's enough there, there because I'm not sure there is enough there there, and I'm going to allow you to defend that. Um, so this is the episode where Sean defends the book that he chose, because I've got questions about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I voted for it, but I feel like we chose this book, right? Well, wasn't this your choice for the year? Oh, maybe it was. <laughs> it was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sorry either. Well, you don't have to be sorry, but, you, but <laughs> I have some questions about it. That's good. I, I needed that reminder that I, I have to go to the... Go to the map for this book. Uh, I think I think that partly the answer is what we have been talking about all along. And by all along, I mean in the one discussion we've already had. Uh, I think that <laughs> for the for the time to begin with, and in, in its own time, uh, it was it marked something different. It was a it was a change or a contrast to what was the popular novel of its day. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with the tone, hmm. which is what has so fascinated us still as we read it, uh, partly because we're reading it at such a, a remove, and we have uh, we have to read past, you know, more than a century of developments in novelistic tone, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes, you know, to bizarre extreme lengths uh but so it's a maybe it's an a novelty or a novel uh interest to us in that regard 
But I think that those specific problems that you mentioned that the plot hinges on are well chosen because they are easily universalized uh, in in metaphor. Right? They can easily stand in for a number of problems because it's really just a way for a drama about competing loyalties and duties to play out. And that's a story that that never gets old. And uh, I think we were seem to be largely in agreement last episode, and I think we'll continue to be uh, for now uh, <laughs> that there's, <laughs> I mean, well, just because, you know, we, have, we don't want to anticipate the end, uh, but that the, the solutions to those problems that the novel may present, uh, at least so far, have not been telegraphed as being overly simplistic or reductionistic or romanticized. Uh, the It's very human problems that are being dealt with in a very human way, and I think those are uh, enduring stories. Can we talk about melodrama? Oh, yeah. Do you not find some of the essential... Like the, the way that the problems are approached. Let me cause and Heidi, you can jump in any time um, that you wish. Um, I you can you can you may have to you you may have to pick a side Unlike here. Unlike Victorian sure. women. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Unlike Victorian women, you 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 may participate in this conversation whenever you wish without <laughs> our judgment. I um, that. Oh, actually, I can't guarantee you that we won't yeah, judge know, you right? for your participation because it, it, it is a podcast. Right, right. Seriously. But you know, reserve reserve your true feelings for when we're off the air, and uh, you know, be more decorous. Right. right, exactly. Yeah, if you'd like to leave them in a journal, um, possibly <laughs> even put them in a in a. In a, in a bottle that is cast out at sea. I'll try to include yeah. as many exclamation points as I can. Right. Or if you would like to, um, you could. You are allowed to share them with another female, presuming you're not under the roof of a home owned by a man. <laughs> so if you're outside, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's okay. Yeah. But if you come back dirty or at late, we'll be upset. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. All right. Or flush. Are the ground rules for this? This. <laughs> yes. Um, just to be, just to be clear, um, do I need to say that? I hope no, you do not need to okay. say this. Okay. It seems right. like you don't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I do have to say that maybe this is just because I'm a woman, but I have completely lost the thread of where we started this. And I don't remember just because you're a woman. <laughs> um, well, the question was, can we talk about melodrama? Yes, um, yes. and so I do agree, Sean, that what the book does well is say it doesn't try to it says it's dealing in human problems it's dealing in like specific human problems it is it is taking a um very specific thing and it is it is turning that thing towards like first things right bigger ideas um in some ways it's like you know, there's a metaphysical novel aspect to it where it's it's not the book that it seems to be simply on the surface. But the question that I have is, does the book drift too closely towards melodrama in the way that it engages with those problems, in particular in the way that the characters think about those problems? And if so, is that a purposeful assessment or presentation of the characters, or is the book itself a little melodramatic? And maybe that's, and and Heidi, I don't know what you think about this. I'll let you go first and then Sean can rebuff if you agree with me. Because, you know, I circled a lot of times, the thing that drives me crazy about this book, I'm just going to say it, Sean. I'm just going to get it out there. There's a lot I like about this book. But one of the things that I don't like about this book is that the characters act as if they are, they talk about, the great evil that has entered the room, you know, and the guy's like, it's like, he just spoke his opinion, like the archdeacon's arch, whatever, his bishop, whatever. His Grantly, I guess, says something, and then his father's like, the whole, the windows have opened, and there's, and there's, there's, there's the, 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 the wind has come from the, from Mordor, and I can <laughs> smell it on the air now. <laughs> and, uh, um, I'm not really sure what who, who that was that I was. I, I mean, I do. It was Grantley's father. That was Grantley's my impression of Grantley's father in Middle Earth. Um, <laughs> and and so it, there's this. It, they they view everything that's happening at, as if 
they're ha- they're being hounded by demons. You know, there's it's, there's yeah. a lot of references to to the great evil that has encroached upon them, and and that reads to me like it's sma- it smacks a little bit of melodrama, like beyond even a Dickensian sort of melodrama. So, how do you do? You agree with that? First of all, do you want to join me in this quest to vanquish Sean? And uh, and and then um, throw me into the and then later bring him back up. So we get the credit for the vanquishment, oh. and then also bringing him back nice. into community, um, like the Green Power Ranger. Right? I yeah, once yeah. again have lost the thread of the question, <laughs> but I am going to answer. Um, about, Whatever question you think yes. is right, answer that question. Yeah. Just join in. <laughs> I am. I do think that I can't quite tell why the stakes are so high for the emotions of the characters. To me, it seems like Mr. Harding is going to lose his job potentially. And which isn't a small then thing. Then they'll have to right. And then they'll have to move into a smaller house since the newspapers are going to say some bad things about him. That seems to be what's at stake. And the emotional reaction of the character seems excessive to that problem. Convince us, Sean. Well, let me just add otherwise. let me just add one thing here. Me. Yeah. I, Mm-hmm. So, so those like the the problem is not that those are not problems. Yeah, those are things agreed. that would be difficult for people to in to live through. But when you're writing in a novel, there is a certain heightening of the drama that asks a lot of the reader, and that's why not a lot of novels are about you know just everyday problems that people run into. Um, Which is what Trollope is known for, to your point. Right. Like that's yes. like Trollope is he is a a realist, capital R and little R, right? He is saying these are real human problems with real stakes to them. And and he has obviously done his research and there's so much mm-hmm. detail and specificity in um and in a historical grounding. Like he's examining a real social problem. Mm-hmm. within England, the England of his time. Um, I I just, I can't picture myself throwing myself upon the ground and weeping <laughs> and stroking my father's face if he's going to lose his job and the newspapers were a bit mean. <laughs> to me, and it, to me, it even goes beyond that though, because it's like the presentation, the asking the reader to, to, to consider what's happening here as a great evil is to equate it with with this with what other evils you encounter in great books. And that to me is like is a there's a dissonance there as a reader. Because I do agree that yeah, it, okay, it's it's it would suck to lose your job. It would suck to be you have your reputation sullied. But is that the kind of evil that the book is the characters in the book are are suggesting? Yeah. And so I I guess we're not we'll give you a faith in a second, you, Sean. Sean. I, yeah. I really, because I realized you didn't write this. I'm just song. waiting. I'm just, I'm um, just yeah. waiting. He does look good. In, he know? does look good in that green I, blazer, though. I do. Of course, he does. <laughs> um, I think I feel like I'm missing something. Like I'm like yeah. that. There's something at stake that I maybe culturally, maybe historically. Maybe there's something wrong with my emotional sensibilities, right? Yeah. Like I'm maybe it's the weather. I am willing to admit I am <laughs> I am the flaw in the ointment here. Um Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I also am willing to admit that. <laughs> I think that's I think that's exactly right. All right. You guys are just the flaws All right. in the ointment. Well, yeah, we know that's what uh, you were gonna say, but you could have said it yeah, differently. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I can build up to. I'm going to build up to. That. I feel attacked. No, I will. <laughs> I will say first that I agree that this book is melodramatic. Okay. Yeah, I have no uh, uh, no false uh, conceptions. Okay, about so we that. can agree on that. Yes, I do think. Well, a couple of things. I want to say one. I want to address one later point earlier, so I don't forget. Uh, I I wonder, David, if it's. I take your point about uh, the comparatively small scope of the evils in the book and how the characters tend to treat them as greater than they are. Uh, But because there aren't, because the book itself isn't dealing with greater evils, I don't know if that's um, uh, a false problem to some degree. Right, because there isn't also the one ring out there somewhere 
uh, on its way to Mordor or not, the there's there's no scale for comparison that makes these problems uh, petty in the in the face of a greater problem. These this is the greatest problem presented in the novel. Uh, so if we think about it at, with this the boundaries of the novel as sort of the boundaries of that scale, I think it's more reasonable. So now and I want to bring these two together because I think that some of that the melodrama is probably partly due to the period mm-hmm. and that, and the Trollope is just trading in it a little, mm-hmm. sure, but sure. I think that he does put some of it to clever use because all of the characters are melodramatic but only in some of the characters is that melodrama warranted. Or maybe it's more warranted in some than in others. I think Warden Harding, uh, he is a he's a soft fellow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he might tend to be a little overdramatic anyway. Uh, right? He's an he's a musician, he's an artsy type. <laughs> uh, but his is the the he does stand to lose the most, whereas uh, the archdeacon has no very little skin in the game, and so his when he talks of great evils uh, and attacks upon the church, right? One that's uh, partly hogwash. Uh, two, it's definitely an exaggeration, and all of the evils and all of the risks and all of the harms for him are just intellectual; they're not real. And mm-hmm. I think the yeah. novel knows that. To your point, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that I think that the the melodrama or the extreme dramatic reactions in some of those characters are meant to make them seem ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I will say that I think that there's uh, the stakes historically, and maybe this is why the novel kind of got a leg up when it first debuted. The stakes historically are somewhat high. This is a, this is a period of pretty widespread corruption in the Anglican church, right? Uh, this is the same Anglican church that uh, sparked the Oxford movement, uh, like a reform and revival movement uh, that actually produced a bunch of notable Roman Catholic converts like John Henry Newman, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, uh, the, in a roundabout way, it led to the founding of the priory where J.R.R. Tolkien was raised. Uh, so there's it's – a, it's, a, it's a rocky time, yeah. religiously speaking – uh, where the corruption in the church uh, is is a big public problem. Uh, but then, too, I think Warden Harding stands to lose more than his job, or what the job he's losing is a little complicated because his position, and it kills me as a Latin teacher to say the, the soft C, but I will, as presenter <laughs> is tied up in his role as warden of the hospital and the salary of the one position has been used to pay the salary of the other position. And uh, it seems like he will have to, I think what, what's in the background is to save honor and give up his position in the hospital. He may also have to give up that other position, uh, which is, uh, which would mean he's not just losing a job, but a vocation. At a time in life where something like that probably can't be regained, uh, so it is. It is a, a significant blow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be like if I, all of a sudden, found out I couldn't teach again, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, sixty instead of thirty-five. Uh, so I think there's. I think it's it's weighty. Mm-hmm. Maybe he needs to buck up. <laughs> Sometimes, but it's a, it's there's a weight to the what he stands to lose. No, and I don't, I don't think I don't personally. Well, how do you just speak for yourself on this one? I don't personally. Um, I get that. Like, I don't necessarily think that it's not without. It it, it was a, it's a it would be a difficult blow, as you said. I agree with that. Yeah, what I'm having a hard time with interpreting, and this is I'm trying not to just make this like a taste thing. I'm trying to like try to get at from an interpretive <laughs> perspective, because 
I mean, this, the idea of melodrama or some of the characters just spouting off things that are melodramatic, but then also to to use the word that you just so aptly used, are hogwash, which is really a word that we <laughs> ought to use more often on this podcast. Right. Um, uh, do a whole etymological thing on that word. Um, there's a there's a sense that the characters at times are expressing a degree of hogwash in a melodramatic fashion. But going back to our conversation last week, the narrator himself is also expressing this notion of this great evil that and engages in this melodrama. So for example, he describes the bishop uh, or the, um, on, on 81, the, when they're, when they're having their conference, the, uh, he describes the archdeacon as a merciless tyrant. <laughs> and he's doing things like that all the time. The narrator is, and in this section, he even draws like direct. He breaks the fourth wall, so to speak, and he talks yeah. right to us. And so he's really drawing attention to himself as a narrator. And so he's asking yeah. you to notice the ways that he, as a narrator, engages with the character of the people, the character of the characters, if you will, and the situations that they're living through. And so that's one of the things that I can't figure out is is the is the melodrama. Um, like the, the the spirit that the book is written in, or is it sort of like sending up the melodrama? And we haven't read the whole book yet, so I can't know that for sure. But what do you th- yeah. what do you think about that? And and again, Heidi, you are well, you are just for the record, you can talk anytime you wish. <laughs> By all means, thank you. Yes, yes, I know I can. Yeah, I'm actually <laughs> looking for a passage right now. So, oh, carry good, good. on. Yeah, I, she's looking I for think- a defense, Sean. I think that it could be. I think that it could be a little bit of both. I, I, I really think that the melodrama is more of a tool that he picks up and puts down, uh, and that when when it's Harding, he does want us to, he does want to tug at the heartstrings and make us feel for him, uh, in a very Victorian way. <laughs> uh, but but that in other cases, the he uses it for the contrast because the. Uh, none of the other characters, none of the other melodramatic characters really feel for the person who's actually being injured in the story uh, thus far. Anyway, Mm -hmm. Bishop maybe, but uh, maybe. Did you find your passage, Heidi? Yes, but it's in next week's reading, so I better not bring it up. Oh. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's about breaking the fourth wall and... I think that one thing I keep noticing about this about this novel is one is there are there are judgments I f- that I sense that Trollope would like me to make that I just disagree with. Um, you mean and, like as like assess like he wants you to be on his side and you just can't yes, get there. So, and and I'll give a I'll, I'll give a contrast to this. Um, one of them comes in the next chapter about Eleanor's visit to Mister Bold, but. I think that the archdeacon for me is the best drawn character in the in the novel and and the most it's the most fun for me to read even though I don't really like him very much but you're not really supposed to right like he's not right. very yeah, right. likable um but I enjoy reading him because I think Trollope has drawn him so very well given him a uh, a, a traditional cause that he believes in, but to your point, Sean, we see how how much of a bully he is in his cause, right? Whether we agree with it or not, we're challenged then um, to kind of wrestle or reckon with the question of if there's a cause that you believe in, do you have the right to be an ass about it, right? Like, and and I think that's an interesting mm. question, and and I like the way that the archdeacon is drawn, especially um, in. In uh, with with maybe not in contrast, but in in the context of his marriage and his family, um, and there's a really fun passage. Actually, David texted me about this day, and I agree with him completely. There's a really fun passage about him. The only time he ever questions himself and his own rectitude is in is is behind closed doors with his wife, right? Yeah. And she kind of makes him feel silly. Um, and and I just thought that was so humanizing, and I liked that a lot. There's these moments like that, and for me, the archdeacon embodies that. Um, and so his excess with with the archdeacon is um, is he he's so full of the rectitude of his position 
that he comes across that he's being a bully about it. I think that's interesting. Um, With bold, on the other hand, we're continually told what a good man he is at heart Um, by our narrator, by Mr. Harding, by his sister and by Eleanor. But I don't see anything good about him. No, I don't. Right? That's like that falls flat for me too. And, I don't buy it. and so that's what I mean. It's not that I don't get the irony or the humor or don't understand that there's multiple perspectives. It's that this book is telling me that John Bold is like at heart this like chivalrous guy, and I think I don't but see any evidence of it at yeah. all. The way that he treats his sister, the way he treats Eleanor, the way he treats Mr. Harding, his claims of moral superiority, the the facts that he's willing to ruin the man he wants to be his father-in-law and, and then go out and say that it's just because he thinks it's his duty. I don't, I, I don't care how many times someone tells me that's okay. I don't think it is. And <laughs> and with and so I don't I want to be able to make that judgment if the narrator wasn't continually telling me what to think about Mr. Bold through multiple sources, I would like the book better because I'd be able to just dislike him. And so I I, I feel like this book has a conscience and a really strong moral center. And, and that is where I think modern, um, modern readers are why I think that's part of why it's enduring, David, to kind of go back to your earlier question. One is I think the mm-hmm. social question that it brings up with like the reformer spirit and the traditional spirit is enduringly relevant, especially to us um right now in this in in this um cultural climate. And I think particularly people like us who are people of faith, we find it refreshing in a sense to read a novel by a man who has a traditional mindset and is um and and is is upholding uh, instead of deconstructing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important, really valuable. And I think maybe, Sean, that's part, I mean, I didn't read your your article yet, but I was thinking about something that you said last week about how he can be a refreshing alternative to Dickens. Um, yeah. And that Dickens is like social reformer, right? And and Trollope is, um, seems to me to, if not take the side of, of um, traditional English aristocratic values, at least to present it as a compelling and very real social force that you can't just jettison and throw out the door. And I think that that's there. There's there's a lot to be said for modern readers reading and um, and finding that just like really refreshing and true. And um, but I do struggle with what if I disagree. Like what? What if I want to form my own opinion about this character and I'm continually told what to think about him? I find it very off-putting as a reader. Now, do you think that the narrator has nothing, has no condemnation for bold? I don't think that. I do think that there's plenty. That's a good question. I do think there's okay. plenty of. Um, it's just the, the point that it starts from. Yeah, there's just. The, the um, estimation that, it's, right. that it begins with. I have much hope that bold is going to change, but I don't like to be told that I have to like him as he is because I don't. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. And a- if the re- and if the narrator would just let me feel that way, I would like the <laughs> I would like it. I would be like, thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. There was a paragraph that with a pencil it was describing bold, and I actually just like X'd it out. I didn't like not to delete it, but just as like a note to myself that like does it really what I'm asking is does this paragraph need to be here? Like what yeah. what is the impact of this paragraph being gone? I'm not trying to like, you know, you know, say that I I know more than you know, Anthony Trollope, but it's just like as an exercise, as a question, sometimes yeah. what is the what how does it impact the reader for this part to be gone? And it was where he's basically telling us how to feel about bold. And I read it without mm-hmm. it and I was like, oh, I actually kind of I think it might actually be it might <laughs> have a, a little more oomph. He's yeah. a good character. Um I just but he's a character you want to wrestle with. I I have a mind of my own about him. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. um I I I think that Part of this goes to our earlier conversation about the development of the novel and narrative voice and that the Victorian novelists did not have an expectation um, yeah. either on a literary or a moral level that that they should remove themselves from the narrative. Less, voice. less is more was not a, a literary right. virtue. Yes. Show, don't tell wasn't a thing. Like, yeah. and, um, and so 
there's there's no literary flaw within the context of its time. Sure. Um, yeah. And and I accept that. I don't I don't feel like I mean I feel like I can say I don't necessarily prefer it, but I accept that. And we've we've discussed that when we talked about um, many other authors of this time period on the show. Um, so I don't think it's any secret that it's not our necessarily my favorite type of narrative voice, but I, I accept the terms of the historical time. Yeah. I just think that this book brings up so many complex issues that it would be better served to let them be complex for us. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then yeah, otherwise it seems fair. a bit like a, what's the word? A screed. I don't know. Like you're just it, like it, like you're trying to make a point, which sure. Yeah. Can. Make and a I, point. I, I think that later, and this mm-hmm. doesn't help this particular novel, but I think later Trollope novels do a better job of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So do they do a better job um, introducing, not introducing characters for absolutely no reason? Or does the key continue to do that? <laughs> like, I, I really need to know why I got five pages on Grantley's sons. And their their boxing <laughs> prowess and their personalities and how the daughters. Oh, okay, are. so that's great because I want to talk about I want to talk about Grantley's house and his family. Go on, great because we need to. They, there's a lot. Well, of, I, there's a lot there. I, I, partly, I guess I, now I already know part of the answer to my question. But I was just going to ask what you made of that chapter, the Plumstead Episcopi chapter. Um, because it does, we do get a lot of time devoted to his family and his boys, which is always in part a a partial characterization of the father. Um, but the the why and the wherefore, I also come away from that chapter not being entirely sure of. Uh, there's one there's one great line though that does seem to say a lot. After uh, after the description of the house, uh, the breakfast room, the the breakfast table, uh, well, there's even there's a great line about the decorating. Uh, that yeah, considering the money that had been spent there, the eye and taste might have been better served. <laughs> uh, it's clear that a bunch of a lot of money, uh, the apparent object had been to spend money without obtaining brilliancy or splendor. Yeah. Like a bunch of money has gone into the decoration of this house and succeeded in not making it very beautiful. Maybe have a plan is what they say. <laughs> well, there's uh, there's a great line in a Tolstoy story that's really similar uh, in the death of Ivan Ilyich. Uh, it says that something like in striving to be uh, in striving to be, uh, you know, unique and and uh, an original in his decoration. He just ended up his house ended up looking like every other middle class house. <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, which is a, a sick burn. <laughs> so, but when we get this, the description of the house and what they do in the morning, and there's obviously a whole lot of uh, uh, the the breakfast table is very lavish, a thousand kinds of bread and meats and so forth. Uh, and then, I, I, well, as one does, as one does, and and then the line. And yet I have never found the rectory a pleasant house. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's what I have to... I need to understand this about the narrator. This is, this yeah. is really something I've been... Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, because he's so much... He's very, he's far more a character in the town. He's like, I've in been this chapter there. Than yeah. anywhere else. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So at the beginning of this section... Okay, so first of all... Well, okay, I'll say this first. It starts... <laughs> Dr. Grantley was Boys blessed with a happy, thriving family. And then he goes on to describe... The family, and there's some thriving and there's some happy, but they're all. Then he always ends the sections with like, but I don't know, like there was something wrong with that kid. Like, <laughs> he really quite, he seemed a little off in his own way. And then he goes and he talks about how the house is like not actually like they spent all this money, but he he comes around to basically saying there's something wrong with this, something's a little off here. But he yeah. begins by saying he was blessed with a happy, thriving family, and so I want. So basically, the question then becomes: There's only two. There's but as far as I can see, there's only two oh, two reasons for this. Trollope missed, he just kind of forgot what he'd written. It's just muddled, yeah. It's muddled. Or he's being ironic. Like there's an ironic, right. there's an irony in the narrator. And if that's the case, then 
how does that impact the way we read the book? The other part of it is that how do you mention that line? Where so far is my favorite line in the book, where uh, he's with it's on at sixty four. He's he's with his wife, and we've had their conversations have been the funniest in the whole book. Mm-hmm. And he it says um, his motto. Uh, actually, let me go back a little. It says John Bolt has shown his power, and though he was as odious as ever to the archdeacon, power is always respected. And the reverend <laughs> dignitary began to think that such an alliance might have not been imprudent. So he's talking about whether his his sister in law should have married John Bull. Yeah. Nevertheless, his motto was still no surrender. He would still fight it out. He still believed confidently in Oxford, in the bench of bishops, in Sir Abraham Haphazard, and in himself. And it was only when one when alone with his wife that doubts of defeat ever beset him, which is an incredible line. And that is, it's great. I was trying to decide yeah. how that how I how that works out in my own life, and we can talk about that another time. <laughs> um, so, how first of all, this person who is a uh, is is a character in the town he is it is distinctly a person it is a, a, it it has a there the narrator has a character at least for now <laughs> right right yeah at least for now <laughs> he he knows certain things that he shouldn't know if he is just a regular regular dude about town so here's my question Sean yeah is it possible that the narrator is a dog is the narrator a pet that is welcome into <laughs> private rooms <laughs> Is is that <laughs> maybe a ferret? Like, is it possible that this is? Did you yeah, know, by a the way, fly that, on the wall? Exactly. Did they think that they think that the smartest dog ever was a border collie who died at age fifteen, and by the time it died, it had the mental capacity of a six-year-old and knew fifteen hundred words. <laughs> so it maybe it's not, that dog. Maybe that them, English border collie is the narrator maybe. of this book and is welcomed into otherwise private <laughs> settings. See, and has relationships the with these thing. children. I, I picked up on this last time. You have this weird, you have this weird hang up about the realism of the narrator. Like, what if it's just he just sometimes he's a guy about town, and sometimes he just knows stuff. It's true. David's very literal about narrators. <laughs> I mean, what about Homer? I'm, he knows what I'm he talking. Knows weird stuff too. How is he in Hector's bedroom and in Achilles' tent? What's going on? Do, do you really want to get into that conversation of what the difference is? <laughs> I want to tell you my favorite can. part of that. My favorite part is when the archdeacon goes into his study and closes the door after his breakfast. Oh, man. Sits down and he gets a secret door and starts <laughs> reading Rabelais. I'm I not love con- that. Yeah. I it's, think it's, that's so it's great. great. Yeah. And then he, but of course, he looks like he's been working all day as Which soon as somebody he, comes to the door. Rabelais yeah. is... He is scandalous. So he's edgy. Read, yeah. Yes. He's reading these scandalous French playwright. Like he is. Uh-huh. It, it, Behind he, closed I doors. just like the archdeacon's character. I think he's great. I am. He's the one that the he has the trial has the best grasp of. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And has yeah. presented him as, you know, the wicked tyrant. Um and he is a bully. Um, but then he has these wonderful, like humanizing, ridiculous moments that I just think are delightful. Um, and he's the one who makes the the narr the 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 narratives like uncomfortable, right? He's the one who actually yeah. is like embarrassing yeah. and um and and creates some real social tension. Um, that isn't inside of people's minds and hearts, but is really in the room. And I like mm-hmm, yeah. that. And ostensibly, he's on your side if you care about Harding. But right. he's also not... Is he? Well, he's supposed to be like defending He's him, trying I to guess. save his living, I guess. And at that, first, at first. Yeah, which is okay. another reason why okay. I think he's a great character because you want, you're like, well, you want him to get his point across if you want... Mr. Harding to keep his living, but also he's such an ass that you can't root for him. And that creates a really interesting kind of dynamic. Um, So I I just think I'm a big fan of the Archdeacon and a literary. (laughs) Who's the guy in Twelfth Night with the socks again? I'm drawing a a bad blank right here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yep, that's all. But it's not what? Well, I was going to say it's not Twelfth Night, but it is Twelfth Night. So. Oh, oh. Yeah. I was wrong. <laughs> Withdrawn. Withdrawn. Oh, I see. Objection. Um, overruled. <laughs> by myself. Yeah. Um, the thing about the narrator, Sean, is that the, the the point of view of a narrator is a precision question in storytelling. That's true. In Homer, 
I don't care if the narrator knows stuff. If the character, <laughs> if the character doesn't claim to be right, a, a, he's to, not. He's not a Trojan soldier. Yeah, right. Yeah. If if the narrator yeah. had been like, you know, um, if the narrator had been like the wine bearer or the dog for Agamemnon, and he knows all the stuff, I'd have questions. Although if it's books? a dog, a dog would be waved. A dog as a narrator of Homer right? makes a lot of sense yeah. given how home, given the dog in the Odyssey. I'm just going to throw mean, it out there. Wishbone got pretty close to that, and it worked. Yeah, you know, I think maybe you're not taking seriously what I'm saying, but... Uh, <laughs> I think you're not taking seriously what I'm saying. <laughs> no, okay, so... um. I, and I do accept what Heidi's saying that like the concept of narrate narration and point of view it, it evolved since 1855. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't. I'm not like trying to. Rege- I'm not trying to like be pedantic about something that he would not have been thinking about. But it, but but because we have, just because he didn't have a way of thinking about it, we have terms for these conversations now that okay. allow us to think about the nature of story. And we can say, we don't have to judge him for the choices he made, but because we have been operating in a storytelling framework for the for 170 years since he wrote that, we have a certain kind of language that we're used to. And so I don't think it's inappropriate to try to get, try to understand what this writer is doing, even if we're, even if we're saying this is what we're used to. Like, I don't think that's wrong. Um, no, and I think your point about, about, precision is is helpful this is one of those books that i think there's a lot of really good ideas and a lot of really interesting ideas and what i'm kind of pushing not pushing back against just kind of like bumping into is that that sense of imprecision and trying to figure out are these choices or is it just a little muddled and that the book is close to being awesome but there's a reason we don't talk about it in the same breath as crime and punishment or david yeah. copperfield which is I didn't just list two books who I think which I think are overwritten as well. But you know, I'm trying to think of books from the same century. Um, right. War and Peace. The notion of overwriting is a complicated one. I don't want to. This is true. Don't want to get into that. Um, but what do what do you think, Sean? As someone who who does like this book quite a bit, and not just for the ideas. Yeah. Do do you are you is this something where you're like, oh yeah, it's a little muddled here. I don't even want to say sloppy because I think this is a good writer. Just a little muddled here, but I. That I overlooked that, or do you say it's, or would you argue, no, 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 this is not muddled. These are like choices that are being made, and this is why. I'm, I'm always, I'm always willing in someone that I that I have other evidence for their brilliance. I'm always willing to grant a lot of the benefit of the doubt and lean towards that second one. But, but no, I definitely would say that this is an imperfect novel. Um, I'm, I wouldn't defend it as as the the best of the best uh sure yeah i but i i love it and i think it's a lot of fun and i think that a lot of the things that are done are done intentionally and to great effect but no i would i would not uh try and defend this as a perfect novel yeah and i and we're not going to spend every episode complaining about <laughs> areas where it gets a little muddled oh, did david just freeze all right so sean i do feel like we've kind of dominated the conversation with our questions and you have answered them very satisfactorily. So thank you. Satisfactorily. That's the word I was used. (laughs) But what about some things in the novel? Like, do you have some favorite parts or some things you want to talk about or draw attention to in this section? So I think that the, that bit in, in the Plumstead Episcopi chapter is pretty great. Uh, I don't know that these next bits are favorites, but I think it's worth talking about what Eleanor, what role Eleanor plays in these chapters. Yeah. Because we do see her uh, spurn bold. Mm-hmm. And, and then we just get that touching uh, scene with her father uh, at the end of the reading mm-hmm. where they both finally understand each other. And, uh, you know, offer each other some mutual comfort. Right. Um, so what do you make of Eleanor? She seems to me a very, um, like, beloved Victorian heroine archetype, right? Like, she is the virtuous and loyal um, Victorian heroine, right? And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, right, yeah. and that the traditional loyalty to... To the man she is 
bound to Mm -hmm. rather than the man that she might, you know, like longs to be bound to. Mm -hmm. Right. A modern, a modern version of this story. It seems like that might be a more complicated relationship and it is complicated. I mean, she loves bold again, for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, (laughs) uh, But that there's, just culturally speaking, it seems like there would be less of a of a an impetus to reject him hmm. for the sake of her father. Maybe that's not. Maybe I'm misreading our you know our our day and age, but I don't think so. Yeah, she seems to me to be the only character who's uh, who actually has some kind of compelling dilemma between duty and desire. Since like yeah, as we right. talked about that. Duty v, duty v duty is like the the main conflict of the story so far, and I and I think that's what I'm trying to say. I don't know that she has a clear duty right to bold, but a modern reader might want to define what she has toward bold as duty, mm-hmm. uh, right. just because you know, huh. like the duty the duty of the heart or uh, what have you. But yeah, I think that it is a much clearer cut duty versus desire. Uh, conflict for her there right right because she wants to be with bold she likes bold she maybe loves bold but she like she is her father's daughter first um and she's caught then i like the fact that her father told her about the dilemma i was yeah like the whole time i'm like is nobody talking to eleanor nobody's telling any of the women anything um so he did which that that was a good thing for me. Yeah, yeah. He did tell her he didn't think she would understand, but then he told her anyway. <laughs> to be fair, though, people keep telling him that too. Yes, and I don't even know if he meant, you know, cognitively, you're a woman, and so this will be tough for you. But that maybe he's not sure he can communicate the turmoil inside himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think that he has a lot of respect for his daughter. Yeah, I think so too. Speaking of which, what do you make uh, make of the few times that the notion of the heart does get brought up in this book? We have the the two duties competing against each other, but there are instances where the heart is, and is specifically, uh, you know, called to the fore, including when the bishop says to Harding, "Basically, follow your heart." Um, we'll follow your heart. We won't. We you don't have to do anything. with my tyrant son, don't listen. Just follow your heart. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what, so what do you think the book is? Like, what role does the heart play, and thus desire play? And that's a different sort of desire than, like, you know, the desire that Eleanor might have for for John. But it, nonetheless, the the question of the heart is being dropped in here and there. Yeah, I actually really like that question a lot because I'm trying to find my way through that as I read it because the front and center um, dilemma is duty be duty. Like, Mm -hmm. I think I have a duty to this. You think you have a duty to that. I respect that, but we're going to fight it out. Um, And there seems to be a lot of room for um, especially men to... uh, to follow their individual consciences um, and be respected for it. Um, and, and it seems to me that for Mr. Harding, the thing he wants more than anything is to do the right thing. Like he truly wants that. Um, whereas the archdeacon wants to protect the church and to put the church back front and center as the primary institution that is shaping culture. Um, and to protect it, right? He needs a battle to fight. Um, and John Bold, I am not 100% sure what his motivation is. And that's interesting to me. I can't quite tell. Like, that's why I like to watch him. And I don't want to be told what to think about him because I'm trying to figure him out on the pages of the book. Like, what is it that he actually wants? Um, and I think- What do you think? Yeah, do you, go ahead. Do you think he wants to think well of himself? Yes, and that's why, in spite of all of the the opposition to the contrary on the Facebook page and on Substack, I think he's an Enneagram One because the thing <laughs> he wants more than anything else is to believe himself to be a good man fighting an important battle, right? Mm. Um, and so, but he's not just vain. He seems to really want that for its own sake. 
um, and need that, right? He, and um, and that that's interesting to me. I I like that trying to figure out what characters want because usually what characters want is the primary motivation of their actions in a story, right. not what they think they should do. And I think this this story's different in that and that there's there's people are continually trying they're they're motivated by what they think they ought to do and um which creates a different kind of conflict at the core of the story. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's mm-hmm. a duty driven age. Right. Like this, this time, this Victorian time, um, and its social problems, um, they made claims of absolute duty far more than we do. And I think that's another reason why modern readers find it a bit refreshing to read Trollope, um, mm. because of that. And where we've lost that, that's gone. <laughs> um and <laughs> um, and so all absolute claims in this novel are based on the should question. Um, which creates kind of an interesting set of individual and social dilemmas that's pretty unusual for modern readers to have to grapple with. And and maybe that's why um, so many people find it compelling. Yeah. Anything we need to add before we move on to the rest of the book, Sean, or anything you, you want to mention? Do we, and, and as far as narrators go, do we need to talk about the notion of an unreliable narrator? Because that means something very specific. And that's not what I'm talking about when I'm being critical of the notion of a consistent narrator. Uh, I think that comment is all we need to say about it because I think yeah that, that's that's very different and and not really not really relevant here. Yeah, an unreliable narrator is a te- is a totally technical thing introduced in like 1940 or something. And I'm not talking yeah. about unreliability; we're just talking about a pattern of consistency. Right. If the narrator of this novel said at the end, "Psych, I was the archdeacon the whole time," then we'd have a different you right. know, problem. Unreliable but... narrator, someone you cannot trust in terms of. Plot, voice, and 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 the and the story gives you clues to try to in, interpret that for yourself. That's not what's happening. Right, here. right, right. And it's also sometimes it's used in terms of tying the narrator to is that is the narrator saying something different than what the author mm-hmm. intends? Like Wayne Booth writes about right. that. So that's sometimes another way that it's used. Um, we're not talking about those like technical. We're just talking about the notion of I don't think I don't. We weren't trying to talk about him being unreliable. Just like, you know. A little muddled, perhaps. Complicated. Yeah. Um, well, Sean, fun, um, things we should be looking for, warnings you want to make, uh, things you want to call out as being genuinely exciting. I just, getting getting further into this novel, uh, this section of chapters, I, there's, I don't want to say that there's nothing here. There's There's some rich passages here, but the plot doesn't move very much. This is these five chapters. It's mostly people talking about what we know about the plot. The biggest development is the legal opinion comes back from London, right? The technicality uh, emerges, <clears throat> right? But even that is, yeah, a kind of nothing burger because it's just uh, that. Oh, he's uh, he picked the wrong defendant for the lawsuit. <laughs> we got him. Uh, <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> uh, so the rest of the of the relational drama and the and the plot itself has yet to kind of move forward. And the big, the big piece that has not been in focus in these chapters and will come back into focus more is the warden's relationship to the beadsman of the hospital. Hmm. Uh, so that's look for look for that you know front to emerge again. That, that does get on. briefly. We do get that little scene where um, uh, what's his name Bunce, right, comes in and like offers a solidarity. To the, yeah, he's hope, to the, he's hopeful that he'll find the warden in good spirits after he hears about the legal opinion. Frankly, I'm surprised no one has used the name Buds for a, for a butler in in some some book. I mean, we had Bunter. That's true. We do have Bunter in Sayers. It's that's true. Close, that's yeah. that's true. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Which, by the way, we barely talked about Bunter when we just recorded our oh, Sayers episode. I so I, I feel like that was and really that's a And that's going to be up on. So today's the 24th. We're recording. That'll go up on the 31st. So it'll be up two days from the day that this episode drops it for the first time. Please so. forgive us, listeners. Yeah. Dear listeners. The next time we encounter a, a an interesting butler in our mystery reading, we'll have to have the whole conversation we'll, out. We'll just in the future have to do another Sayers novel that can can be give, given, you know, we can give him, you know, all the attention that he deserves. That's right. Or or another or a Jeeves and Wooster or something. Should we we'll do just, a literary anyway. butler's bracket? 
Ooh, I love that idea. Do we have? Are there mm. enough of them? I think Maybe. we could get. I think we could get a decent number. Real Maybe dark horse. Servant. What if we just did servants? Oh yeah, or, literary servants. Okay, well, I've got to think about this a little bit. I do think no one, gardeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for this, yeah, does Sam count? Um, First murderer, <laughs> Sam Wise. Murderer. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that that count? would make it really interesting if we had yeah. servants and sidekicks well he's just you could i don't even know if you need to say sidekicks you could just do servants because servants and gardeners are like because he could just go into the gardeners category uh it probably right. end up with sam wise versus jeeves in the end a real i know real yeah. you know that the the butler in um uh, uh broadhead that takes care of yeah. sebastian oh, yeah. that guy a real dark horse in this um yeah. i don't think he'd win but i don't think Peaky really deserves more credit than he gets in the in, you know just in the intelligentsia yeah yeah that's right those butlers at oxford for all these rich these rich dudes who were going to school and throwing up out windows and stuff really oh yeah you got get... the, the batman and all the evil war novels yeah yeah exactly we are a far field now um yeah, I, it's all, it's all connects. <laughs> yeah exactly that's right, right. <laughs> heidi any uh any final thoughts from you? No. Okay. Well, I would just, my final thought is I really would like people to just post, you know, just like sit with the notion that maybe the narrator is a dog. Just like <laughs> as you read the rest of the book. I really, just, really want if, that to be If true. the narrator is a canine, like a canine buddy of somebody, like how might that just wanders about town? How might that impact your reading of the story is what I... I but now I'm starting to wonder, like, what if you interpret all narrators as dogs? How would that interpret? How would that change? Unless I'm, you're otherwise told. I'm afraid that I'm going to start doing that now. Sorry. Are you a dog guy? Probably for the best. Oh, you want a, yeah, you want a bulldog, say, right? I do want a bulldog, yeah. Which one? English or American? English. Okay. Next time you see my wife, talk him up to my wife. Talk him up? You got one in particular? Clarence? Just just the the English bulldog as a Clarence the English breed. bulldog. Well, if you got Clarence, your English yeah. what would you name your English bulldog? Huxley. Oh. Huxley. I love that. That's such a good name. You could call him Hux, I guess. You no, have the at right. the ready. Yeah. Oh, this yeah. is like a plan. I, this, is, this is not a years, wish. This is a plan. Years in the offing. Get our get our various English uh dogs together at some point how's your yeah that's right I, we people can just turn this off if they want to Heidi how's your uh how's your your dog you're still a puppy I guess um yeah she is the cutest thing ever and I love her so much I did not know I had the capacity in me to love a pet as much as I love Penny she's the cutest thing and I just like think about her when I'm not at home sometimes which I've never done that before and I've had dogs as an adult because Scott loves dogs a mm -hmm. lot. And I have always like loved our big dogs. We've always had yeah, like, big dogs. Yeah. And now I have this little lap dog who just loves me. And all she wants is cuddle with me all day. <laughs> and I just like, and I have this is why all of the Renaissance paintings have the rich people with exact, like the Queens and stuff with that kind yeah. of dog on their lap because they just, there was these dogs just wanted to hang out with you. I have missed my calling as the queen Renaissance queen. <laughs> You could still have someone do a painting that makes you look like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I could do that. Although nobody should ever speak to me again if I were to do anything <laughs> like that. So Fair I would enough. forfeit all right to human interaction. So I'm not going to, but, but, but I am going to imagine myself as a Renaissance queen with Penny <laughs> on my lap. Do you think even Renaissance queens had to ask for permission from the men in their lives to speak or go on walks or whatever, or do anything that wasn't like oh bearing children or cooking? I mean, like, what is how does that play? No, I think a lot less often queen. than you might think. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. did what they want. Yeah, and it paid to be a queen back then, right? Right. That's right. <clears throat> as long as they produced a male heir, then they could do what they want. Yes. Once you get that male heir, you're good. Golden ticket. Yep. As you know, a quick a quick study of Queen Elizabeth. She did a lot of stuff that she wanted to do without producing the male heir. Or did she produce a male heir? Oh, Ooh, yes. Mm. Historical Ooh. conundrums. And um, was it Shakespeare? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, yeah, but she had to work question. really hard. She had to win a war with Spain to be able to do what she wanted. And I, yeah, I don't know. That just enough. seems like a lot of work. You just want to hang out with the I'd dog. rather produce a male heir. <laughs> <laughs> well done. You did that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You're set. Um, yes, indeed. Do, um, I wonder if there are English bulldogs in paintings. 
I think so. Oh, yeah. 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 I think that's, yeah, that's an aristocrat dog. Yeah. My dog, my dog's in a painting of an English bulldog. (laughs) My, what's the, oh, you know the famous painting of the dog? Oh, what's the guy? Um, it's in the National Gallery. Um, the poodle. Um, it's called Poodle on a Bunt or on on a punt. Oh, yeah. um, You know the painting? That's a great painting. Mm -hmm. Um, it's one of Bethany's favorite paintings. And I, one day I want to like get, uh, get that painting like so large and, uh, put it in our (laughs) house somewhere that doesn't really have good walls for large paintings. Um, I just think that'd be hilarious. Um, that's a great idea. I don't know that she'd be expensive. Well, she'd be real into it. You know, like I'd be into it. Um, this is a great painting. I'm looking at it on my phone right now. I forgot the look on his face is so cute. <laughs> so, you know, he also, who's the painter, the artist? Um, Etsy.com. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yep. Oh, Lord, Lord Etsy. <laughs> yeah. What is it? George Stubbs. Stubbs. That's right. So Stubbs also did an incredible painting, which is in the National Gallery in England. Um, It's that giant horse painting. Oh, yeah. He did all these. He was like known for his animal paintings and they were well ahead of their time in terms of the texture and the 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 realism in them. Um, Big fan of George Stubbs. So much so that I knew his name. Yeah. Yeah. He's got that painting of the the lion on the horse, right? I think that the, 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 the lion like riding a horse or eating a horse. Well, like jumping on the like attacking a horse, but he's like jumped up on the back of him. What if George Stubbs did a painting of a lion riding a horse, like actually <laughs> riding the horse, like 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 the fox, and the fox, like Richard the Lionheart. Now the you fox. can really turn this off if you. Yeah, want. lion attacking a horse, 1765. Great, wow, that's a great painting. <laughs> you have a lot of horse paintings. Yeah, whistle jacket is the famous one. This one. Yeah. And it's it's enormous. You can see it from across the gallery in in London. Where we'll be next year. That's, That's right. right. Save save up. So if you're still Deep. here, if you're still listening, it means you are very committed and, and you are probably you'd be exactly the right the kind of person. Fit. Coming with us yeah. to England uh-huh. next year. Yeah, yeah. more details. details to be announced. That's right. Forthcoming. Forthcoming. Jinx. All right. I think we need yeah, to. Yeah, we should wrap this up. So for Sean, yeah. for Heidi, I'm, I'm David. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Happy reading or whatever. Bye.